We welcome you to our congregation this morning. We wish you a blessed new year. A change has come to our church. Praise the Lord. As I look out there this morning, I see that I am the only person wearing one of these. And that must be good, because when I was a young man growing up, women always outlived the men, because men had one of these slowly choking themselves to death all the time. So I don't know what the new year will hold, but I might fool you some Sunday. So be ready for that. Now we're talking this morning about something that ought to be pertinent for all of us, hope for the Gentiles. And we build on our lesson from last week, and we're going to take a look at our, after our introduction, hopeless and helpless, the condition of the Gentiles before the atonement of Christ. And then they will be brought near, and then we will consider the blood theology, a very unpopular topic in some circles. Last week, we talked about the necessity of unity in the Christian church and the impossibility of that apart from the supernatural work of God. We reviewed from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 God's grand purpose for everything, to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And one day that will be coming. But we talked about the fact that until that time, the church, the Christian church, should be a picture of that unity to everyone who might be looking. Then we talked about the fact that if we're going to fulfill Christ's great commission, we're going to have people in the church of all nations, kindreds, tongues, languages, as it says in Revelation, and they will be very different from one another. We saw that in Paul's day, that difference between Jews and Gentiles created a difficulty in the new church. External differences created internal complications that led to outward discrimination. And that's not a good thing when people begin to look down on others who are not the same as they are, especially in the church. It doesn't work well in a community or a nation or a family, but especially will it be difficult in the church. Then we concluded that only Christ, through the gospel, could create an atmosphere of harmony and unity and goodwill in a family, in a marriage, and particularly in the church. So that's what we're shooting for. Today, we're going to consider just two verses, verse 11. Excuse me, we had verse 11 last time. Today, it'll be verse 12 and verse 13. So keep your Bibles open. We will refer back to Ephesians 1 from time to time. And then I have some scriptures that will be on the PowerPoint so that we can move through them quickly. I want to consider the great plight of the Gentiles today who did not have access to the benefits that Jews had. What would have been some of those benefits? Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, that's the patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, referring to Jesus' earthly lineage. 
there was a connection that the Jews had with Jehovah God with regard to a coming plan that God was going to unfold, and that was the coming of the Messiah, the Incarnation. Now, many of the Jews had those benefits, but they rejected them. Many of them just didn't understand, perhaps, but the Gentiles had nothing to motivate them to seek the one true God. They were off worshiping a pantheon of pagan gods, mythological gods, and there was nothing to connect them with the one true God except something that God had put of his law in their hearts, which they had rejected long ago. We'll see how that happens. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse uh, 1 through 10, Paul describes the condition of sinners in general. We are dead in trespasses and sins, he says. And there's only one thing that's going to help the deceased, and that is new life, to be born again. And we talked about that, raise them from the dead. We saw the answer in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now in our verses in this new section, 11 through 22, Paul is going to home in on Jews and Gentiles in particular, and he's going to describe God's provision for both. We're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2, 12, and 13 the problem that the Gentiles were experiencing in that day and that they continue to experience today. And this message is going to roll right into our celebration of the Lord's Supper because it fits very well with verse 13. Here's the problem for the Gentiles and for unbelievers as well. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, hallelujah. What a great verse of scripture. Now, some might consider it unfair that God would have revealed himself to one group of people, namely the Hebrew people. But keep in mind that there was a time on earth when every living person knew about God. They knew the Almighty God. They understood God's wrath against wickedness and unbelief. They had seen the results of ungodliness firsthand. They had witnessed God's deliverance as well as his judgment on a wicked world. I would imagine that it was a terrifying experience for the eight persons on the ark when they saw God's judgment on the world of that day. There was Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And God had told Noah to build this boat according to God's specifications. And it took them a long time to build it. And during that 120 years, Noah was preaching, preaching, preaching. God's judgment is coming. But no one paid any attention. 
So when that ark landed after the flood on Mount Ararat, everyone who disembarked from the ark on terra firma knew about God. What happened? How did the Gentiles get into this plight that we just have read about? Well, I trust that um, we don't stumble along the way like somebody did among the three sons of Noah. Verse 12, they were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. How could anyone possibly have arrived in such a condition after everything that had been seen and documented in the ancient world the same way people get there today? Now, here's a longer passage of Scripture, but it gives us a good explanation for what's going on. The wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed. We're in Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the, it gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised Amen. Now, last week we noted that God had made a clear distinction in the Old Testament between the, uncir- between the circumcised, the Jews, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, sometimes referred to as Greeks. The Jews were very proud that they owned the sign of the covenant. They hated Gentiles, but we learned that both Jews and Gentiles had one thing in common. One thing that we share with them. What then? Romans 3, 9. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news in Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. After Christ's ascension and a time of prayer and supplication, the disciples and others were gathered in Jerusalem at the time of the celebration of the feast, and something happened there in Acts 2. We see a huge crowd gathered, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, 
and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, all heard the gospel of Christ being delivered in their language. And this marks the beginning of the fulfillment of Christ's great commission. We're going to all nations now with the gospel, as we talked about last week. The first section, hopeless and helpless, the plight of the Gentiles as well as unbelievers today. Ephesians 2.12, remember that at remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. We have five things, and the first part of that verse says to remember. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. So we want to remember this morning that we used to be in that situation. Now, some of us might have been very young, and all of these things wouldn't hold uh, true for uh, a very young person, perhaps, who grows up in a Christian family. He might not know the time when he did not know Christ, but there would have been a time when he did commit his life to Christ in repentance and in saving faith. The phrase, at that time, in verse 12 In that phrase, Paul uses the word for time, kairos. He doesn't use chronos, which is a measurement of time by the watch or the calendar, but kairos refers to a specific time, a time when something is going on. We talk about the suitable time or the right moment or the convenient time. The Jews were without Christ for a season, but now, verse 13, that has changed. The right moment has come for the nation to supersede the church in the sense that the nation would no longer be the channel of God's redemption. It's shifting over to the church. I wouldn't say God is finished with the nation, but now, if you want to have a relationship with God... You come through the church. In the Old Testament, you had to get in touch with an Israelite. You probably need to go to Jerusalem, where the temple was located in the days of the temple. That's where you came to worship God. They would have to tell you about God and explain to you how these things worked. But all of those things, the ceremonies, the priesthood, all of that was a picture of the coming Messiah. And now the Messiah has come, praise the Lord, for the Gentiles. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection has removed the barrier. And now the Gentiles can hear the gospel message heralded from the church if the church is doing its duty. And that's what we've got to bear down on in 2016, heralding the message to all people through our missionaries, through ourselves and the local community, in prayer and support of those who work full-time doing that, uh, we have a lot to think about for the new year. Let's take a look now at these five barriers for Gentiles before the atonement of Christ. The first one is they were separate from Christ. What does it mean to be separate from Christ or the King James without Christ? It means there is no peace, no hope, no heaven. 
It means that uh, there is no remedy for the guilt of sin. And there is no solution to the breaking of God's law, which people do all the time, every day. There's no knowledge of a Savior. There's no guarantee of eternal life. And there is spiritual darkness that clouds the mind so that it's impossible to understand spiritual things, Paul tells us. We see that in Ephesians 4 and verse 17 and 18, a familiar verse. Paul says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. What does this hardening of the heart include? What if an individual is a kind, soft-hearted, sweet person who just happens to be an agnostic? Are they separated from Christ? Absolutely. Everyone who doesn't have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ is separated from Christ. Now, there may be a few like that. Others may be corrupt and rebellious, profane or sensual. Some may be good people who just neglected the good Lord. Unfortunately, God says there is none good. That would include religious enthusiasts, pious devotees, all who are darkened in their understanding. Because it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Here's the good news if you come to Christ in repentance and true saving faith. It doesn't matter what you were before you were converted. There might be some challenges with the effects of your former life or the results of that. God, When God removes uh, the guilt of sin, He doesn't always take away all of the consequences, but He takes away the consequence of eternal damnation. And that is the good news for the Gentiles. It's kind of like marriage. What you were before the wedding doesn't change what you are after you're married. You are a married person, for better or for worse, as we say. But what you were before doesn't change anything. We would hope that as Christians, we wouldn't have to bring a lot of baggage into the relationship with Christ, into the church. But that's what the church is all about. And many people were burdened down with all kinds of things before they came to Christ. We started counseling course in First Light this morning. That's the reason we're doing that, because when people come to Christ, they're going to need some help with all the baggage. So we can't be concerned about the baggage. We've got to be concerned with getting them in touch with the Savior through the gospel of Christ. Now, we need to note here that even though the Gentiles were separate from Christ, Christ still had them on his heart. It's a good thing for us to remember, even before the foundation of the world. But Jesus is praying, and he says here, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, 
and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The one flock is the church. The one shepherd is the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. We have the shepherds of the local church, but he is the main shepherd. And that flock coming together into one is our task in this church age in which we live. Well, they're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What does that mean? King James says they're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth, politia, means citizenship. And all of the freedom and rights of privilege that citizens get who belong to some particular political entity. That's where our word political comes from. The word had great significance in Paul's day. We see Paul playing his citizenship card to keep from being scourged. In Acts 22, the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship, that's our word, politia, with a large sum of money, sum of money. Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. And then they didn't dare touch him because he was a Roman citizen. The commonwealth of Israel is the old channel. But it was the only place on earth where you could go to learn about God or maybe talk to some Israelite. Now when we talk about being excluded, that is a very difficult thing. Aliens, it says in the King James. And the word, apolitrio, denotes that Gentiles were foreign to the commonwealth of Israel. They did not belong. People usually look on family and friends for some type of acceptance and some type of affirmation. This word means just the opposite of that. We're not going to have anything to do with you because you are a foreigner. Jews were banned, they were ostracized, they were ignored, and they were refused. You have different words in different translations. Some use excluded. Some use strange because they were outlaws. They were seen as outlaws. So this word excluded is used only three times in the New Testament. And it describes this condition of alienation. The first place is in Colossians 1, verses 21-22. We're adding another verse to get the meaning. Gentiles were alienated from God. Unbelievers are alienated from God. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Second use, they were separated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18, we read it. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Third use. Excuse me, that word separation is in the perfect tense and it refers to the permanence of this condition because there's no one that can come along and say, hey, we, we need to help you out worshiping all these false gods. That's, that's not really the way to go. You need to come on over here and join up with us. Well, it seems that Israel didn't have a missionary message in the Old Testament. At least they didn't understand it fully. There were Gentiles, we noted, who came to know God. But now in the New Testament... In the new channel of redemption, the church, we have a strong missionary message. That is our main purpose, I would say. 
Third use, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel from our verse today. Excluded, we know what that means. Now, when the Greek New Testament was, trans- when the, excuse me, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek a couple of hundred years before Christ, this word is used for what David is saying in Psalm 58. See if this would uh, remind us anything of original sin. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. From birth. Could we say, well, I don't speak lies, so really the original sin, Adam's sin didn't affect me. No, that's not what he's talking about. We've probably all told a lie at some time or another, probably many lies. Scripture indicates that those who were excluded were hostile toward God. In Romans 8.7, the sinful mind is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's going to take the work of the gospel through the shed blood of Christ, touch someone's heart as God touches their heart, then they can submit to God's law. Now the Jews came to believe in the Old Testament that they came into citizenship automatically because they were a member of the commonwealth. We know that that is not the case even in the Old Testament. Some were true believers, some were not. Romans 9, 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And to clarify that in Galatians 3, 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have become, who are the sons of of Abraham. Well, the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers, xenos. It meant complete foreigners with no rights or privileges. There were different uh, names given to different groups. Aliens were non-citizens who lived in the city and were given certain privileges as neighbors, but only citizens had full rights and protection. Covenants of promise were made by God to his people of blessings in the future, mostly that were going to come and be fulfilled through the Messiah. But the Gentiles had no such message. They had no such connection. We see what Paul says, what Luke says in Acts 13.32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Covenants of promise were an anchor in the time of storm to the, Gentile, to, to the Jewish people. You remember in First Light today we talked about the fact that when the Israelites got away from God and worshipped the idols, then when they got in trouble and the Foreign nations were encroaching upon them. They would always come back to God and call upon the mighty God because they knew about him. And they knew that they had the promises. The Gentiles had no such thing. They would be like sailing on a boat without an anchor that has no captain on uncharted waters without a compass. All they had were the false gods who couldn't help you either in life or in death. They were like someone who didn't understand the language over in Israel, and they didn't understand it. 
having no hope. This is not just I hope so. The word refers to the expectation of some good that stands to be fulfilled. It's something that you can count on, that you can depend upon. It's confidence, confident expectancy. We would say that most people in our day have hope in something. What do they have their hopes in? Maybe a form of religion or some belief about God. They might be counting on external morality, be a good person, God will take care of me. It could be the good Lord's sense of fairness, a God created in man's image. It might be they believe the doctrine of universal salvation. Or perhaps they feel guilty, so they engage in some sort of penance to expiate the sin and trust that they might earn something from God, earn forgiveness from Him. But none of that is going to count because Luke tells us there is no salvation in anyone else. For there is no other name under heaven that is given among men whereby you must be saved. And that would be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it like not to have any hope? Job went through a pretty rough time and it seems that his hope was fading. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Certainly he regained his hope. But we see the opposite of that in Psalm 146. How blessed is he whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher, gives the perspective on hope without God. He says that hope is the worst of all evils, because it prolongs the torments of man. If you have hope and then that hope doesn't prove to count for anything, that can be very disappointing, even devastating. Then the last one, without God in the world. What do you think is the saddest word in any language? Saddest word in any language. Now the two words, without God, is one word in the original Greek. And the word is athanas, which means godless, godless. So if you take the A, that means without or against. And then you take theos, which means God. We get from that our word atheist. That must be the saddest word in any language without God. Because there is no help. And there is no hope. Nothing can be done. But fortunately, something can be done, and it's incumbent upon us to get out there and do it. We see the attempt to eradicate God by modern philosophy has brought in a new dark ages characterized by ignorance of the truth, hopelessness, and despair. Now, we wouldn't say the Gentiles were atheists in the strictest sense, we would say they were atheists in the original sense because they had many gods that they worshipped, but they were without the true God. And that's the problem today. Unbelievers worship many gods, but they don't know about the true God. They don't know Him. They don't worship Him. They can't pray to Him. They don't love Him. They don't serve Him. They don't fear Him. They're moving rapidly toward a godless eternity. What a terrible thing to think about for any person. 
even those who would be enemies of the church. What do people do who are without God? Well, they usually wrap their lives around things. Things, things, and more things. Their life becomes an eternal Nintendo game. They are looking for material blessings, possessions, and so forth. Nothing wrong with those if we're using them for the right purposes to promote the kingdom of God. But we don't want to let those things become the idols of our hearts. So quickly we see that the Gentiles were brought near. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. Jews were near. Deuteronomy 4, 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? No nation would be the answer. But Gentiles were far off. Acts 2, Peter's preaching on Pentecost. He's, he's telling them a change has come. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as call on the Lord. Even as many, excuse me. Now I made a bad mistake there. Notice what it says. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And Peter is talking about the internal call. As the gospel message goes out, some people are going to get it. The ones who get this efficacious call as we say. The but now in our verse is a parallel to that uh, verse 4 that we've talked about. The Gentiles who were by nature children of wrath even as the rest, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Now that's really grace, for by grace you have been saved. Now we want to think about a time of celebration of the Lord's Supper. And in this last little section, we want to see some of the things that we need to remember as we're told in Scripture that this should be a remembrance to us of what Christ has done for us. You remember Christ instituted this at the Passover meal with His disciples and told them to keep this communion as a remembrance. Blood theology. It seems that some people today would not be too concerned about the blood of Christ being shed, but when you mention the blood of animals and the sacrificial system, that would be worse than anything you can imagine. It's almost like we, if the race of mankind becomes extinct, we just leave the world to the animals and it'll all be better off. In the lives of some people, you remember we read in Romans 1, they worship the created things in the image of animals. Well, we don't have time to talk about that, but we want to consider today that we were brought near by the blood of Christ. The last little phrase, brought near by the blood of Christ. Hope for the Gentiles is found in the blood of Christ. Only His blood fulfilled the terms of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you in every good thing to do His will. The everlasting covenant. Blood is the symbol of God's covenant. Whenever in Scripture we see a sacrificial offering made, we had blood involved. Through 4,000 years, the blood of animals flowed freely. 
until we came down to this culmination of that where the pictures in the Old Testament, the priesthood, all of the sacrifices, all of that system, the picture of all of that 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 represented was fulfilled in the precious blood of Christ, the blood of the only begotten Son of God, slain before the foundation of the world. We see in Revelation 13, 8, meaning that God had a plan for Christ to die even before the world began. In a word, Jesus Christ is the new covenant, which is really the everlasting covenant of grace, whereby the Father agreed with the Son before the foundation of the world that based upon His shed blood, people were going to be forgiven and made acceptable to God. Christ's blood counted for all the people in the Old Testament that were just looking at the shadow that the sacrificial system afforded. The Messiah is the covenant. And Christ as the covenant is clearly presented in the book of Isaiah. 42.6 I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. This would be the hope of the Gentiles. The Messiah will come and shed His blood for them. His blood will be efficacious for all people. So let's uh, consider some of the blessings of our salvation as we remember the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, what are some of the blessings? Quickly. Redemption. Redemption may be attributed to the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. We couldn't leave this one out, First Peter 1, 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to, to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Justification, Romans 5, 9. Much more then, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Removal of guilt. This reiterates the first two, Romans 3.24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. And we mentioned the verse in first light, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Our guilt has been replaced by Christ's righteousness. Cleansing from sin, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Are you washed in the blood, we sing. And finally, communion. 
1 Corinthians 10:16. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now, as we participate in the communion, let's remember every spiritual blessing that is afforded us through the blood of Christ. He shed his blood so that we might have this redemption and join with him in eternal life and glory. When you think about that, that causes great gratitude to well up in our hearts.